The line between criminal activity and state-backed enterprise, between big business and gangsters, is becoming increasingly blurry and it's getting increasingly hard to tell who is who. And what that means for people working in compliance or financial institutions or AML is that spotting the difference between a legitimate businessman, a criminal, or an agent for a rogue regime is going to become trickier. Welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance, and financial crime to the real world. I'm your host, Friedrich, Head of Strategy and Business Development at Strice, and in this episode, we're looking at the rise of state-backed gangsters. Spurred on by the heavy sanctions climate we're currently operating in, we are witnessing the birth of a new criminal class, complicating life for authorities, AML professionals, and law enforcement. In today's episode, we bring you the insights of Miles Johnson. He's an investigative journalist at the Financial Times, host of the hit podcast Hot Money, The New Narcos, and author of Chasing Shadows, a true story of drugs, war, and the secret world of international crime. Miles recently joined us live on stage in Shoreditch, where he delivered a fascinating keynote on the timely subject, and today we are bringing those insights to you. Listen in to hear about North Korean hackers stealing $2 billion of cash and crypto assets, planned executions by members of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, and a shady crime boss known only as the Big Guy. Please enjoy. Uh, thank you. Hello. Yes, hi, hi. I'm Miles Johnson. As has been said, I'm an investigative reporter with the Financial Times. And I write a lot about the often strange and shadowy corners of the world where business and crime collide. So it's not really a beat that has a name, but you could perhaps describe it as shady people doing shady things. Over the last few years, I've written stories about things like Russian mercenaries, uh, Mayfair casino heists, money laundering by the Italian mafia, Vatican financial scandals, and covert sanctions busting. And as said, I recently published a book called Chasing Shadows, which is about a sprawling US DEA investigation into global drugs and weapons trafficking. A lot of my recent work, it ties into the same trend, and that's the trend that I want to talk about now. So I want to start here by talking about a crime boss, and he's called Big Guy. And I know Big Guy, it's not a particularly original criminal nickname, but I can assure you he's a pretty interesting character. So last Monday, as I was preparing this talk, some news broke that in some ways basically perfectly illustrates a lot of what I'm going to focus on here. I was sitting at my computer in the office, and the US Department of Justice announced it just unsealed a new criminal indictment. And I started to read through the file, and I could pretty soon see it was, it was a crazy story. So according to the investigation, a Middle Eastern-based narco-trafficker, that's the guy called Big Guy, in 2020 contacted a senior member of Canada's Hells Angel Motorcycle Club using an encrypted messaging system. And so Big Guy, he tells the Hells Angel that he has a job for him to carry out and he needed two people living in Maryland to be murdered. So big guy, he was willing to pay $350,000 for the hit, plus an additional $20,000 in expenses. And the Hells Angel, he accepted the job, and he instructed an associate living in the US to begin assembling a murder team. 
He then gave him instructions about the need for high-quality equipment to be used and that the style of the killing had to be as brutal as possible. Now, this is pretty grim, this part. I mean, the man responded to the Hells Angel in a message to confirm that he would, quote, make an example of the victim by shooting him in the head so many times it would, quote, erase his head from his torso. Now, luckily, the murder didn't happen, so thankfully everyone was safe. Now, on that evidence alone, it could have just seemed like some sort of murky underworld murder plot, you know, perhaps relating to an unpaid debt or some other type of revenge. But it turned out that Big Guy, the Middle Eastern drug trafficker, was not, according to the US authorities, your average gangster. Because in fact, Big Guy had been contracted by Iran's Foreign Intelligence Service to recruit criminals to murder dissidents and enemies of Tehran abroad. So this man's connection with Iranian spies, the US said, had allowed him to, quote, thrive in the country's drug market and live a life of luxury while his network exports the regime's repression, carrying out heinous operations on the government's behalf. So that's a quote from uh, the US Treasury last week. So on the same day the charge were unsealed, the US and the UK issued coordinated sanctions against various Iranian officials for running what it called a murder-for-hire scheme to assassinate dissidents, journalists, and others living in the West on behalf of the Iranian government. And the UK said that the operations in Britain had been coordinated by officials from a division of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards called Unit 840, and there had been at least 15 Iranian state-backed attempts to intimidate or kill British people or British residents since the start of 2022. So what's going on here? Why would spies from a hostile regime work with drug traffickers and motorcycle gangs? And was this just an isolated case, or is there actually something else going on? So we live in a time that more than ever before is being shaped by economic warfare, sanctions and trade embargoes that target regimes that are hostile to the West. And this means that countries like Russia, Iran, North Korea, Syria and others are largely cut off from the international banking system and left unable to buy the things they need on the open market. And if we step back we can see that what's really going on is that there's a battle about who gets to control how money is moved around the world. And sanctions are a test, a test for whether the US and its allies will be able to maintain that control, or if the targeted regimes will be able to find ways to still do business. So simply put, if you're sanctioned, obviously, you have to turn to the black market to get what you need. And the types of people who operate in the black market the people who know how to launder money, smuggle items, or arrange contract killings, they tend to be what we would normally call criminals. So what we have increasingly started to see are new sorts of strange and unlikely connections and alliances between nation states and criminals. So if you take Big Guy, the guy I started talking about at the start, he's the narco-trafficker that the USA works for and is protected by Iran's intelligence services. He's a gangster who is supported by a state, and he's charged with doing the state's bidding. So he's what I've started to call a state-backed gangster. And what do I mean when I say that, and why should we care? So back when I started at the FT as a trainee reporter 15 years ago, it wasn't really in my expectations I would ever write about organized crime. You know, because the FT, we cover things like finance, economics, the stock market, mergers and acquisitions, and there was this clear line back then between the world we wrote about at the FT, the world of business, CEOs, politicians, and the underworld. 
But something since then, over that 15 years, has changed. The line between criminal activity and state-backed enterprise, between big business and gangsters, is becoming increasingly blurry, and it's getting increasingly hard to tell who is who in certain cases. And what that means for people working in compliance or financial institutions or AML is that spotting the difference between a legitimate businessman, a criminal, or an agent for a rogue regime is going to become trickier. Some of these relationships between crime groups and states are very direct, such as the alleged example of big guy. In some cases, criminals are aware who they're working with or for, even if they're not ideologically motivated at all. Some even trade off that connection because it can boost their street credibility. But in other cases, the connection is much more convoluted. It's a sort of outsourcing. The criminals, like the Hell's Angels in that example, are simply contractors hired through various middlemen and they have little idea who their ultimate paymaster even is. And so why is this happening? Why are more hostile states engaging in criminal activity or working directly or indirectly with organized criminal groups or smugglers? And so there's several different reasons. The first, probably most obvious one, is just a simple need to raise revenues. One example is how in Syria, the Assad regime has raised billions of dollars by smuggling amphet an amphetamine called Captagon around the world. In March last year, the US and the UK sanctioned Bashar al-Assad's cousin and a bunch of other Syrian businessmen for overseeing the regime's Captagon production facilities. And the US Treasury said, quote, Syria has become a global leader in the production of the drug and emphasized that the Assad's family dominance of illicit Captagon trafficking and its funding for the oppressive Syrian regime. The UK claimed that Syria's trade in the drug is worth approximately three times the combined annual drug revenues of the, all the Mexican cartels put together. So that's like a pretty you know, eye-opening statistic. Vast Capitagon seizures have occurred in places as far-flung as the UAE, Morocco, Germany, and there was an a billion euro seizure in the port of Salerno near Naples. And in several cases, you know, there were local organized criminal groups involved too. And I can assure you that this money, you know, the profits being made, it's not simply staying in Syria, although it's designed to raise revenues for the regime. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of that money had somehow washed up in London. Your data problem. And your workflow problem. Now it isn't your problem. Strice is your ultimate solution to streamline customer due diligence and perpetual KYC. Transforming your AML strategy from a manual burden to an automated winner. Nice. With AI-centric automation at its heart, Strice fast-tracks your time to revenue. And because we know the future is as uncertain as it is exciting, Strice is modular by design. Prepare for tomorrow's risks and regulations today. Today. With flexibility that adopts to whatever the future holds. And best of all, you experience value from day one. Instant use out of the box. Visit Strice.ai and try our live demo today. Back to the show. So a different example of nation states engaging in crime to make money could be North Korean state hackers who are estimated to have stolen more than $2 billion in cash and crypto assets over the last five years. And hackers who engage in cybercrime also work in other capacities for nation states. They could be stealing industrial secrets one moment and putting ransomware on the servers of a hospital the next. The second main reason for why these sorts of countries would want to work with criminal groups is for strategic reasons. And this is when it gets a little bit complicated because these, in certain instances, these countries are using 
you know, connections with criminals or people who Western governments say are criminals to further the, ge the geopolitical aims of the state through some sort of criminal activity. So uh, someone I ended up writing quite a lot about last year was Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Russian mercenary group, Wagner Group. And he was a really interesting example of this sort of strange type of modern criminal entrepreneur. Because Prigozhin, through Wagner, was profiting from providing mercenaries to unsavory regimes such as Syria and Sudan, and his companies were rewarded with contracts to extract natural resources. And so his mercenary activity was backed by the Kremlin, and it furthered Russia's foreign policy in the Middle East and Africa, but his operations were also designated as a, quote, transnational criminal organization by the US government. So this is a sort of strange hybrid character. He's a businessman, he's a criminal, and he's also a sort of tool of asymmetric warfare. So Prigozhin, who was believed to have died in a plane crash last year, he was all of these things at once. You know, he was a gangster with roots in the St. Petersburg underworld, a real estate magnate, a catering entrepreneur, and also someone who was doing the bidding of the Russian government. So another strategic use of crime, which is something which we've been writing about a lot, is to procure critical technology that has been cut off as a result of sanctions. So if you're a sanctioned government, you're no longer able to use the international banking system or buy the things you need in the open market. So by necessity, if you're gonna get the things you need or want, you're gonna to have to turn to the global black market. And since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting avalanche of sanctions, there's been an explosion in this sort of activity because you know, war and sanctions are a sort of massive accelerant of this sort of crime. So last year, me and my colleagues, we spent a lot of time looking at procurement cells being run by Russia to source critical Western-made technology, such as semiconductors. And many of these procurement cells, according to US prosecutors, are directly coordinated by Russia's intelligence services. And Western law enforcement, especially the US, they've cracked down and issued multiple indictments. But even so, a lot of this activity still slips through the cracks. Last year at the FT, we discovered that a part of a Russian procurement network known as the Cernia network, it had been sanctioned, but it was able to continue buying technology from countries inside the EU, even after the US government had sort of tried to stop it. And this network, you know, it was quite interesting. It was accused of having been working on behalf of the FSB, including for what the US government called the Directorate for Scientific and Technological Intelligence, which is called Directorate T, basically a part of Russia's intelligence services, which the US government says is targeted and asks you know, people to procure these items that Russia needs to put in things like you know, precision-guided missiles. And this Cernia network had a really, again, an impressive client list. You know, it, it included um, the Kremlin's Foreign Intelligence Service, known as the SVR, the state-owned defense conglomerate Rostec, Russia's Ministry of Defense, and even the state atomic energy company in charge of Russia's nuclear arsenal. And the men charged in that scheme, they weren't gangsters as we'd commonly understand them. Yes, they were engaging in crime, but they more resembled sort of entrepreneurs, sort of criminal entrepreneurs of some type trying to profit from the black market. And um, one of the accused cell was actually in fact a spy, a suspected FSB colonel who was arrested by Estonian border guards after trying to cross into Russia with his pockets full of US made electronics, microchips and ammunition. 
But in other cases, these sorts of procurement cells working in Western countries do have far closer and more direct ties to organized crime. So in my recent podcast, Hot Money, The New Narcos, we profiled this Lebanese woman who was caught in an undercover sting operation in New York by a DEA agent. And she had two hats on. So she turned up, she went to a restaurant in Brooklyn, and she thought she was meeting a sort of Latin American drugs kingpin. And she did not know that he was actually an undercover agent. And she had these two hats on. She was working as a cocaine money launderer for organized criminals. So she was offering to launder drug money through various Middle Eastern banks. And she was at the same time also claiming to work for the Iranian government and was trying to convince the undercover agent that she believed was a, this drugs kingpin to help her procure high-end military equipment, you know, things like sniper rifles and schematics for what she called heavy weaponry. And so, you know, other schemes uncovered by law enforcement also featured like local criminals trying to procure things like Western-made night vision goggles for hostile regimes or even saw spare helicopter parts that are very, very hard to source if you're a sanctioned government. So the last reason why nation states turn to criminals is for plausible deniability. There's a growing trend of certain countries' intelligence services turning to organized crime to target their opponents living abroad. And in the case of Iran and the alleged murder for hire scheme that I started with, dissidents and activists have been targeted this way for kidnapping or assassination, according to the US and the UK, in the US, the UK, Holland, Turkey, and many other countries. So one of the benefits of using a cutout, like a local gangster to carry out a murder, is it's obviously much harder to trace the crime back to the organizers. And when Iran has been caught for doing this sort of thing, such as in the Netherlands in 2019, it's resulted in major diplomatic incidents and ambassadors have been recalled and all this stuff. So another benefit is that this sort of outsourcing of murder can be much cheaper than using one of your own operatives. If the criminal's caught, it doesn't really matter. You know, they don't work for the government. You know, effectively they can say, we don't know who this guy is, it has nothing to do with us. So it's a cheap cost with low risk. And um, you know, they don't have to go through years of expensive training and they don't hold any important secrets. So they're disposable. Um, and we've seen several cases of that. So as you can see, there's this sort of slightly odd pattern emerging of sort of players and, and, and behavior of very unlikely characters, you know, ending up in the same sorts of conspiracies. You know, as of the example at the start, you know, a Canadian hell's angel being contracted by an Iranian drug lord who is working for the country's intelligence services, you know, to assassinate someone in the United States. It's a strange chain and, you know, unlikely characters. In my book, Chasing Shadows, there's a DEA agent. It focuses a lot on one DEA agent called Jack Kelly, who works for years to uncover this fairly sprawling criminal scheme, which involves people who were later accused of working for Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed militia, who were laundering drug money in Europe to fund weapons which are being sent into the Syrian civil war. And Jack Kelly, he's a brilliant investigator, and in many ways, he was way ahead of his time in understanding how these new types of transnational criminal networks function. But in his time at the DEA, he was frequently engaged in running battles with other law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies who strongly disagreed with his assessments. And one of the main reasons for this, according to the way he tells it, is because there is and there always has been 
a sort of strong philosophical dis difference between law enforcement and sort of national security concerns and intelligence work. Because, you know, law enforcement, they need to build cases and get convictions. That's their sort of bread and butter. Whereas, you know, an intelligence agency, for example, is wants to gather information and observe people and help governments to make informed decisions. So criminal activity like this hasn't always been seen as a national security issue. And it hasn't always been seen in the sort of you know, the, through the lens of things like sanctions in the same way things like terrorism have in the past. Some, some people also struggle to see that frequently this isn't really an ideological issue for a lot of the people who are engaging in these schemes. You know, often the participants in these schemes are just pragmatic criminals who want to make money. And so that can often clash with the sort of the way in which certain types of um, sort of the government see, see things. So going forward, we're all going to have to get used to a sort of ever messier and more confusing world where, you know, you have governments that in some cases act like gangsters and gangsters that act like the CEOs of multinational companies. So the old way of viewing the world where criminals and state and non-state actors fitted into neatly defined categories is over and it's going to be harder to tell who is who. Thank you very much. That brings the spin of the laundry to an end. A reminder you can reach Miles Johnson on LinkedIn. You should definitely check out his podcast for the Financial Times called Hot Money, The New Narcos. And also remember to check out his book, Chasing Shadows, A True Story of Drugs, War and the Secret World of International Crime. Links to both are in the podcast notes. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, Go check out the back catalog and fold the laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. To get in touch with the laundry team, you can comment on Strice's LinkedIn page, my LinkedIn page, or email laundry at strice.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Fredrik Risser. Our producer was Matthew Dunmiles. Our engineers were Niklas Thun, Dominic Delergy, Michael Bailey, and Fresh Productions. The laundry is proudly produced by Strice the AML Automation Cloud. Your data problem and your workflow problem now isn't your problem. Visit strides.ai and try our live demo today. I'll see you next time. Yeah,